The, the capital of Bolivia that we flew into is called La Paz, and it's situated at uh, 12,000 feet, which sucks because they have no oxygen, it turns out. So everybody who comes there from a place that is fortunate enough to have oxygen, like the, the first world, gets what's called altitude sickness. And the beauty of altitude sickness is like no two people get the same symptoms. Uh, it's just like this wide range of crazy things that can happen to you. Backfence PDX Radio is ahead, this time with stories from the mountains of South America, the trials of a single mother, and one from a man whose life builds to one defining moment. I call my mom, I got, the, I got an invitation for the audition, she's crying, everything else. I'm like, Ma, it's just an audition, I don't know. Backfence PDX stories are told live at our show in Portland, Oregon. I'm B. Frayne Masters, Backfence PDX Radio is next. Backfence PDX Radio is brought to you by On Your Feet, teaching companies to improvise. When everyone behaves like an improviser, work gets better. Online at OIF.com. Hello there. This is Backfence PDX Radio. I'm B. Frayne Masters. Coming up, stories that will take you around the world, around a dark corner, and around a prize-winning wheel that brings fortune, that is, if you're lucky. All stories are true and performed live in Portland, Oregon. Stories are told without notes, unmemorized, and have never been told in public before. The stories you're about to hear were recorded over the past several years. Occasionally, the audio may not be perfect, but we couldn't imagine doing the show without them. First up is Matthew Baldwin from Seattle. He's the man behind the popular blog Defective Yeti, where you can read about things like how he ate, then reviewed every item contained in his workplace vending machine. This story was recorded at Portland Center Stage. The theme for the night was Our Bodies, Ourselves. Hello, Matthew. Hi. Uh, so... This is how disease works. So you live someplace and you, you live in that environment and you get like all the diseases that exist there and then you get immune to them. And then the only time you get sick after that is if somebody introduces like a, a new something into your environment. Like, you know, the guy that comes to work with tuberculosis and then everybody gets tuberculosis. That guy is why you get sick. So the other way you can get sick is if you are the, the element that goes into the new environment. Right. So like in 1993, I got on a plane and I flew to Bolivia, which is in the middle of South America. And everything in that environment was a new malady for me to experience and enjoy. So for the two and a half years I was there as a Peace Corps volunteer, uh, I was like, from the second I got off the plane to the second I went home, I was like besieged with something, one thing or another. And when I say from the minute I get off the plane, I mean literally we got off the plane and were ill. And the reason why is because Bolivia... The capital of Bolivia that we flew into is called La Paz, and it's situated at 12,000 feet, uh, which sucks, because they have no oxygen, it turns out. <laughs> so, so everybody who comes there from a place that is fortunate enough to have oxygen, like the, the first world, uh, gets what's called altitude sickness. And the beauty of altitude sickness is like no two people get the same symptoms. Uh, it's just like this wide range of crazy things that can happen to you, with the exception of just sort of, you know, wishing you had more oxygen, you know, shortness of breath and fatigue. We got, got off the plane and we went to our, our hotel and our rooms were on the third floor, so we check in and there was no elevator, so we're walking up to our rooms and we get to like the, the second floor landing and like all 30 of us, it was like the, the finish line of triathlon. <laughs> <laughs> like the whole trip to our rooms took like 20 minutes. 
Somebody in Bolivia told me that the reason why the Incans, uh, like as a civilization, had lasted so long was because whenever another civilization wanted to invade them, they would like charge up to this altitude and then just be like, And then the Incans would just be like, you know, release the Pumas, and that'd be the end of that. <laughs> and then the other thing about the altitude thickness was you would just get this incredible gas. And I don't mean like, like flatulent gas, it was like someone stabbed you in the side gas. So like we, we would get there and like three of us would be walking down the street and then one by one we'd be like, go! And sort of like pitch over into, into a, like a doorway or something. Like there was a, a gringo killing sniper on a rooftop like taking us out. Actually, before I came up here, I looked on Wikipedia. I was looking at what all the symptoms were, and there was like this huge list of like a dozen. And the last one is general malaise, <laughs> which cracked me up because I, I had this vision of like us getting off the plane as Peace Corps volunteers and just being like, I don't even know why I came here. <laughs> so, so after we got acclimated to the to the uh, the altitude, we had training, and training was basically divided up into three portions. It was um, how to do your job. My job was environmental education how to speak Spanish, and how not to die. <laughs> and the first thing that they would do for this, this latter category was give you this book called Donde No Hay Doctor, which is where there is no doctor. And it's literally how to like, diagnose and treat diseases when you have access to nothing, you know, like no Advil, no gauze. Um, like, like an example is like, you know, if, you think someone, if you think you have diabetes, the way you diagnose that is take a sip of your own urine. Is it sweet? You might have diabetes. <laughs> So that's like the level of diagnostic. It's like, are you dispensing juice? Yes. <laughs> and then for anything having to do with skin rashes, and skin rashes were way, way in vogue in Bolivia, they just had pictures. It was like the only way to diagnose it was pictures. And those pictures, man, it was like, you, it was like looking at an eclipse. You couldn't even look at these pictures. You had to like hold it in your peripheral vision, or like poke a hole in a piece of paper and look through that. Just <laughs> terrible, terrible stuff. And then the other thing we got was like, like inoculations, like tons of inoculations. Um, like they, they did our arms and then they ran out of arm and then they put them in the ass. I mean, we just got every inoculation you could know. And these inoculations, sometimes you would actually experience the disease that they were inoculating you against. So it was like a Whitman sampler of diseases. <laughs> you know, we had like typhoid Tuesday. So I got sent to this small town called San Pedro. It had like no electricity, no water, uh, no phones. It was, out in, it was in a valley, there was no roads. Um, the biggest concern, health concern there, was called Chagas disease. Uh, and in Bolivia, there's this, this beetle called the Vinchuga. We like to call it the assassin bug in English. And this Vinchuga would come out at night and it would bite you on the face. And then if you scratch the, the, uh, the wound, you would get this chronic degenerative disease. And you wouldn't know about this until years later. And out here where I was, where there's like no doctors and no diagnostics, the way you basically diagnosed you having Chagas disease is one day you would have it. And you'd say, oh, I guess I got bitten by a Ventruga bug at some point in the last 10 years. <laughs> so for that, you know, I had to sleep in a mosquito net. I had, to, uh, I had to patch up my Adobe house all the time to make sure the Ventruga bugs weren't out. Everything was sort of geared toward, it, I was safe essentially, but the people I lived with, they said like 10% of the population in Bolivia had this chronic disease, Chagas disease. For the Peace Corps volunteers, our biggest threat was this thing called uh, amoebas, which is amoebic dysentery, which would just hit you out of the blue, and everybody got this at some point during their Peace Corps volunteer service. I lasted like a year and a half. I thought I was going to be safe, and then I was traveling to visit my friend, of course, in transit, and then I got the amoebas. And, uh, it's, it's like the Reader's Digest condensed version of flu, where it's like all the flu symptoms in like a day. 
it's basically like your body just has clearance sale, like everything must go. <laughs> so I was fortunate enough to like not have that, that, the actual symptoms in transit, but I was visiting a friend, I show up at his house and I'm like, hello, I've got amoebas, and then I just spent like three days like throwing up and sh at his house, which is kind of like how we would bond, because they didn't have like football there, so guys would just kind of hang out and do this sort of stuff. I was, I was fortunate that he had in his possession uh, the sleeper. The sleeper was this uh, strain of marijuana that a Peace Corps volunteer, volunteer was growing and distributing throughout the country to the, to the uh, various volunteers. And he had a little film canister. This was back in the days when cameras had film. He had a little film canister, this sleeper. So he, after three days of me not eating and sort of befouling his house, he just made a bunch of pasta and dumped this little canister, the sleeper, into it. So named because you would immediately consume this and fall asleep. And served this to me, calling it Rasta Pasta. And it was like the best <laughs> meal of my life. Like if you want to have good spaghetti, like have amoebas for three days and then have your first meal and it's awesome. I don't really smoke marijuana very often, but I am a huge proponent of medical marijuana, thinking back on getting the sleeper from my friend Marco. Uh, thanks to the amoebas and other factors, uh, my biggest health concern was my weight. It was like 120 pounds when I was there. Uh, part of that was the food was really boring. I just didn't really feel like eating it. Uh, there was other factors, like at one point I found out I had a tapeworm. Um, that was when I was like really hungry all the time and not gaining any weight and went in to see the doctor and she said, yeah, you've got a tapeworm and gave me this pill that was like this big. And I, was, and I said, is this going to kill the tapeworm? And she explained to me that um, it didn't kill the tapeworm. Uh, so it's like, you know, have you ever been in a relationship and you don't really know how to get out of the relationship? <laughs> and so you just try to make yourself as unpleasant as possible to the other person <laughs> in the hopes that they'll like leave? That, that's, essentially, that's essentially how you get rid of a tapeworm. You take this pill and then you're just like this big drag to be in. <laughs> um, you know, people don't like hearing about tapeworms. I, like my mother like, did not want to hear, hear about the tapeworm. But I gotta tell you, if you spend any time in the developing world, on the, the spectrum of worms, tapeworms are like the Ingrid Bergman of worms. <laughs> I think like growing up in America with like Richard Scarry and Lonely Worm with a, the top hat and the leather shoe, we have like this false impression, but that is, is really not an accurate portrayal of the worm phylum. Um, and you know, it wasn't just me that was sick. Uh, all the other Peace Corps volunteers had some sort of sickness or other. We're just all acclimating to that environment. And when people would come and visit me in, in the Peace Corps, basically they would show up uh, you know, as my guest and we would go to the hotel and then they would lay in bed and sweat and then I would hold a bucket by them for 10 days and then I would send them home and <laughs> hope that they didn't have Chagas disease in five years. <laughs> I, sh I should probably check in with some of those guys, come to think of it. So. I did some other stuff in Peace Corps. I like set up mothers groups. I did environmental education, it was my job. Uh, I did soil conservation. After two and a half years of that, I uh, got on, on a plane myself and flew home. Um, of everything I did, being sick might be the thing that stayed with me the longest. Uh, even now, when I have some sort of horrible rash that I can't look at, I, the first thing I'll do is go into my den and pull down the Donde No Hay Doctor, even before I go to the internet, and sort of hold it in the corner of my vision and see if maybe I can diagnose it myself Hopefully without, you know, having to drink urine or anything. <laughs> Thank you. That was Matthew Baldwin. He went from being a volunteer in a tiny village to working for one of the largest tech companies in the world in the span of a decade. 
When Backfence PDX Radio returns, sometimes when your life gets turned around, your past reaches out and turns you right back around again. This is Backfence PDX Radio. Backfence PDX Radio receives love from St. Cupcake. Their creations are made from scratch with their hands and their hearts. Everything is baked the day it's shipped. SaintCupcake.com. This is Backfence PDX Radio. I'm B. Frain Masters. With the next story is Meg Warden. In high school, Meg was the runner-up lilac princess and dreamed of being a solid gold dancer, because who didn't? Told at the Mission Theater in Portland, here's Meg on the night mistakes were made. So my newborn baby was eight weeks old. And he woke up early, as babies do, to eat one morning. And I got out of bed, and I had this light blue bathrobe on. It was my boyfriend's bathrobe. Nothing really fit me yet. I got up to feed my baby, and there is this loud pounding at the door. And my boyfriend's in bed, and he says, Oh, shit, it's the feds. <laughs> and... He, he knew that because he was a career criminal. He was um, what they call an earner for the mafia. And that is when you're not actually Italian, so you can't be a made guy, but um, you get to work for them and make money. So he'd been expecting the feds to show up for some time, kind of in the back of his head. And he got up to open the door and... Um, I'm holding my infant, and this robe is getting wet. If you've ever had a baby, sometimes they're not really controllable. So (laughs) the robe's getting wet, and my baby is hungry, and he opens the door, and there's six federal agents with their guns drawn and bulletproof vests on, and they come into our house, our apartment in Brooklyn, and they spread around and they are shouting and asking us, is anyone else in here? Do you have any weapons? And I don't really know what to do. I've got this baby and my, my boyfriend is getting handcuffed and he's kind of all I've got. I've got no family in New York at the time and um, it was a pretty tenuous relationship as it as it was being you know wasn't very safe where what we were doing so um (laughs) so he gets taken away and um so eventually i mean sort of everything goes into into crazy mode i'm i'm here i've got four dollars you know living with a criminal it's feast or famine so I have $4 when he leaves. We either have a shoebox full of money or nothing. And I've got $4 and he's gone. And I don't know where he is. And I've got a couple, I've got some people coming in to help me a little bit, some of his friends. And um, I move into this smaller apartment because I'm thinking, well, that's what I should do. I should move into a smaller apartment. And I don't really know at this point what's going to happen to him if they're going to keep him. There's a lot of unknowns and I'm really scared. So, I move into the smaller apartment, and it's two weeks to the day that I move in that there's another knock on the door. 
and I've got my baby, I'm, I'm mashing up bananas because he's <clears throat> hungry again. And I open the door, and there's these two guys standing at the door holding badges. And they're kind of dressed like the Beastie Boys a little bit. They've got like backwards Hurley caps and brand new stuff. I mean, just everything's new, but they're kind of looking like they're going to a rave in the morning in New York. And they, I open the door and they're actually there for me. They say, you know, are, are you Meg Warden? And I'm, yes. And do you know this guy? And they start asking me they, all these questions. And I, I mean, I've invited them in. They're sitting on my sofa and I'm, I'm holding again this, this baby who's now a couple of months older. He's got his little red and white striped pajamas like Whoville and um, his little rattle. And he, they're asking me, you know, we know what you did. And, he, and I had done it. What, what had happened is about a year and a half previous to all of this, I had been flying ecstasy tablets from New York City to Springfield, Missouri. My boyfriend, the one that was in the bed that had expected the feds, would tape them onto my body. We would put an ace bandage and I would pull up a girdle and put a loose shirt on. This is pre-9-11. So I would go through security with a jacket on and carry these ecstasy tablets to Springfield, Missouri. And it was pretty fun. Like, it was a big adventure. I felt really empowered. I, I had something in my backpack that was really valuable. And I got to, like, take up space, and people came to me for this. So then, it, then that kind of died down, and I got really sick of hanging out with drug dealers. And I was like, we need friends that go to the Guggenheim. This sucks. And so um, I we stopped like it was that it just wasn't even a big deal it was like we did it i contacted my creditors and um, used the drug money to pay off my debts like i was like the world's dorkiest drug dealer and i so i had nothing to show for it except a little bit of a higher credit rating and um so here are these guys in my apartment and I've got my baby, and they're being awfully jerkish, and they're telling me, you know, you need to tell us what happened, and it'll be, we're here to help you. This will be good for you, because you can get it off your chest, and we're going to help you. And I'm, I'm, fortunately, I mean, I guess that's a matter of perspective. I'd just gone through this thing with my boyfriend, so I knew better than to say anything to these people, and I, I called the mafia lawyer guy that all these people were talking to, this disbarred guy that was like helped out with the Fugazi stuff. And he actually helped me. He got on the phone with these guys. I mean, they were saying, you know, you might have to call someone to take your baby and we might have to take you back to Springfield right now. And this is terrifying. This is like, like nobody is here to like, who do I call? I've, I've all of a sudden, like, screw the drug dealing, I've got this baby, like, he counts on me, and I've got bananas in the food processor, and nobody to take care of him, and I just felt like the blood had drained right to my feet, um, you know, you don't mess with my kid, so this lawyer got on with them, and, and said, you need to leave, they hooked me up with another lawyer, and I'm in this apartment, and it's really, really more than I think any mother should have to bear. I mean, I'm looking at this baby, and he's got his little striped pajamas and his rattle. 
and he's chewing on his rattle, and he doesn't have any idea, you know, what's just happened or what is perhaps getting ready to happen in his life. And, um, you know, so unfair. It just was so unfair to have to imagine that for him. And so I ended up, we're fast-forwarding a little, I, ha I had to move to Missouri, where my grandparents had retired and were living on a farm in the middle of what they call in the Ozarks the holler. So I had to move from New York City to the holler, which sucked. <laughs> and um, I would just worked really hard. I had to waitress, and I was a hairdresser at the time, so I was, I was cutting hair and waiting while I was on what they call pretrial services. Um, Springfield, Missouri takes it very seriously when you fly 5,000 tabs of ecstasy into their town, and I was now the New York wing of Operation Exposed. There were 16 people on my indictment. I only knew two of them, uh, my boyfriend who got the pills and the guy I dropped off to. And it had been a long time, and um, things had changed. I'd had a baby. I was no longer using drugs recreationally to the extent that I was, and um, I was... <laughs> I was taking really good care. I was doing yoga. I was doing a lot of yoga. I was training even at this point to be a yoga teacher. Like I was really, really wanting to do right by this little boy who meant everything to me. And so during pretrial services, I'm doing drug tests. I'm going through this process and I'm, get, I'm going to be sentenced. And um, my lawyer keeps saying, you know, I keep hearing these words from these people, not a foxhole conversion going to be fine. You're either going to get five years probation or you'll have six months to self-report. This means that if you get prison time, that you get six months to get your affairs in order and you get to take yourself to the prison and check in. So neither of those options seemed great, but I was going to have to do them. So I'm, I'm prepared. I'm carrying on. And since I was kind of at the top of this hierarchy of people on the indictment, my sentencing had to be one of the last ones. And so they kept putting it off, putting it off, putting it off. And I'm living with this huge thing. I mean, I can't really tell anyone. I'm in a small town and um, I'm working and I've got this thing running like a program, you know, on your computer. It's just running and running in the back of my head and sucking out all my energy. And um, I, I can't even describe. I mean, it's just like, how do you plan your future? So finally they call me and they've scheduled my sentencing for December 24th. At this point, I've got an 18-month-old baby who's having some cognizance around Santa Claus and Christmas, and he is saying to everyone he wants a rocking horse, and I have bought this rocking horse, and it's cute and wooden, and it's got little yarn hair, and, and it's up in the attic, and it's going to be his first, I'm going to be Santa Claus, like I'm a new mom. And so I go the morning of the 24th. I, I hadn't slept at all that night. I have a really bad feeling. The lawyer, they're still saying, you know, this whole five years probation, six months self-report, and I have a terrible feeling. But I take my own car, and I drive my son to daycare, Miss Connie's house. And um, he were getting closer, and I'm looking in the rearview mirror, and I see 
his face in the car seat behind me. He's saying, Miss Connie's house. There it is, Miss Connie's house. And I drop him off at Miss Connie's house. And he used to wave at me out the window. And Miss Connie said that he would say, bye, Mama, bye, Mama, bye, Mama, bye, Mama. And I, I didn't know that because I was driving away. But that he would do that. I could see him. And he would say that until my car was completely gone. And as I drove away that morning, I saw just his black hair, and I can tell, you know, he's standing on something just so his eyes clear the windowsill, and he's making this I love you sign with his hands. He's going, bye, mama, bye, mama, bye, mama. And I'm driving away, and I drive, and I get to the courthouse, and I'm standing in the courthouse in front of this judge, and my family has come in another car. I've got my grandparents and my mom and an aunt and a cousin. And they all stand up. All these people stand up. And my lawyer stands up. And all this not a foxhole conversion action happens. And, and she's a good mother. And she's working two jobs. And this is a one-time thing. And it was a bad relationship. And, and all these things get said. And the judge looks at me after about a half an hour, and I'm, I read my apology. They tell me, be ashamed. You need to be very ashamed. Do not go in there with your tail wagging. You need your tail between your legs. And I read this thing, how sorry I am that I've done this terrible thing. Anyway, so about a half an hour, and the judge says to me, I just want to say, you're really lucky that you have your parents to take care of your son while you're away. And maybe while you're in prison, you can start thinking about making some better choices for your life. Again, it's like my blood is pooled on the floor. I'm in a vacuum. I can't even think what is getting ready to happen, that I am not going to leave this building free. I have to take off my coat and my jewelry and I have to hand it to my mom. She's screaming. Two men get up. I hadn't even seen them. They're sitting at the side. They get up. Two federal marshals come and hold me by the arm and say, we'll take you behind this door so that your mom doesn't have to see you get handcuffed. They take me behind the door and I can still hear my mom screaming. But more than that, I see that little shock of black hair and that I love you sign and I'm thinking oh my god that that baby you know he doesn't even know that by mama what what that that really meant this morning and they take me to down to this holding cell and that's how I started the two years I spent in federal prison in Texas during that time I saw my son three times my mom my grandma drove him down and I have to say that it's a miracle, and I feel really lucky that during that period of time, our connection stayed extremely strong. I called him every day. I sang Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star to him over the phone at night to put him to sleep. And when I got home after two years, he ran out of the door so fast and so hard, he still tells the story of how he fell on the floor. And then I picked him up and put him in my arms and his face in my neck. And he said to me, Mom, I missed you. 
I'm so glad that we don't have to cry about missing each other anymore. Now we can cry about other things. Thank you. listening to Meg Warden's incredible story. Wow. Today, her son loves duct tape, eating sushi, and imitating Dwight Schrute from The Office. Meg is currently a writer and nutrition coach here in Portland. Coming up, when you've wanted and wished for something since you were a kid, there comes a point where you'll say just about anything to get it. To learn more about our show and about our live show in Portland, visit our website, backfencepdx.com. There you'll also find podcasts of the radio show and more information about our storytellers. This is Backfence PDX Radio. You know who loves Backfence PDX Radio? Papina Swimwear. Drawing inspiration from vintage swimsuits, Papina believes you don't have to show it all off to be sexy. Papinaswimwear.com. I'm B. Frayne Masters. This is Backfence PDX Radio, where we take stories from our live show in Portland, mix and match the best of from the past four years to create an enjoyable smorgasbord of narrative for the radio. Our next storyteller is Matt Pellegrin. Think of your favorite tall man who has a mystery-filled twinkle in his eye, and you have Matt. Growing up, my parents loved Wheel of Fortune. Uh, we would watch it every night, they would watch it every night, and they would compete, and uh, the winner would get a uh, half an hour back rub, or at least that's what they told us. Uh, some, sometimes we saw the back rub, sometimes we didn't, I don't know. Uh, and, yeah, I know, weird. Uh, so, I grew up watching it, and um, was very good at it and uh, watched it for, you know, uh, forever. And uh, everybody said to me, you, you need to go on Wheel of Fortune. You have to go on Wheel of Fortune. Family said it. Girlfriend said it. Uh, anybody who watched it with me said it. You have to go on Wheel of Fortune. And I'm not, I, I was not good at uh, trivia. I was in I don't do crossword puzzles. Um, I only watch Jeopardy when it's Teen Week, you know. But 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 I'm good at Wheel of Fortune. I'm really good at Wheel of Fortune. I can get Declaration of Independence with three letters. I I, I get it. I don't know why, I, but I do. So uh, so I would apply, you know. I I started applying several years ago, and I submit the online application, and uh, they say you have a, a better chance of winning the lottery than you do of getting on Wheel of Fortune. Okay, so I put my application in. Then I go back, and they have themes. So I applied for uh, Family Week, Best Friends Week. They do Sweethearts Week. Uh, I'm on there for NBA Week. I, I hate the Lakers, but I pretended that I like the Lakers because I figure I have a better chance of getting on with, with an L.A. player than Portland. Uh, they, I, I, according to Will of Fortune, I have four cats and three dogs because they have Pet Lovers Week. I don't like cats, but they, but they, but they have all these themes. So I put all these things in there. Go back every two years, resubmit, resubmit. 
they, they, they do um, uh, soap opera week, <laughs> and, and God Love the Oregonian. The Oregonian does every Sunday uh, a recap of the soap operas, so I would read Days of Our Lives every Sunday, and I know about Days of Our Lives, and I put in that I'm a Days of Our Lives fan for the soap opera week. I know about the Kariakuses and the Gradys and all that bull****. So I, so I was ready. I, I could be on for any theme that they did. I was ready. I, I, I tried to, they do, they do military week, and I, but I couldn't, I couldn't really flub that one. I didn't know. So, so that was the one thing where I was like, I can't really fake that. But every, anything else I was on, any other theme I was on. So uh, uh, no calls, no. But last April, I got an email inviting me to audition at uh, the, the Monaco Hotel downtown. So I call my mom, there's a back, I'm from New York, and so I call my mom, I got, the, I got an invitation for the audition, she's crying, everything else, I'm like, Ma, it's just an audition, I don't know. <laughs> but, but oh no, you're gonna get on, you have to get on, you, this is your destiny, it's your destiny, you're gonna be on with a fortune. Patsy Jackson, I love you. So, uh, so I go to the audition, and um, I, you know, there's 80 of us. They do two rounds, which are easy. I get through those, no problem. They dwindle us down to 20 people. Where we're gonna do mock rounds, mock games, uh, and then intros. So mock games are easy. I do those, no problem. Solve, 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 uh, and then it comes to the intro part. And I know from watching uh, that they want you to be happy, and, and which I am, but they want you to be cheesy and like, you know, sometimes fake, and they, they want you to be like, you know. So, so we get to the intro part, and uh, there was actually a couple of people that got up there and said, um, so I just got laid off, and um, when I'm not out looking for a job, I'm I'm watching the wheel, and if I if I win, it would really help out my kids. And I'm like, all right, so okay, so now it's down to 20 of us. So I'm like, okay, that guy's gone, and another guy, a couple of people did that, and then uh, then a couple of people got up there, and they were like, oh, I'm, I'm a doctor, and um, you know, uh, my free time, I. Uh, fix cleft palates, and if I win, I'm gonna, you know, donate all the money to AIDS research and all that. And I was like, okay, that's pretty good. <laughs> uh, and and so, but uh, but you gotta play them, you know. Maybe they want the real person. So so I get up there and I was like, hi, you know, restaurant manager, and I and I know, okay, so watching it for 25 years, I know that they love newlyweds and. Um, <laughs> And people that are engaged, and you know that they 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 love that wholesome type story thing. So I'm in a wonderful, committed relationship. So I was like, yeah, I want to let's throw it out there. You know, they say I'm better chance of winning the lottery. So it's like, oh yeah. So uh, and I'm, I'm engaged to a wonderful woman, and and when I'm not planning my wedding, I play golf, and I uh, and my fiance and I love to go out to. You know, eat and cook and blah, blah. So they say, okay, well, they take your picture. And they again, there's just 20 of us. And they say, we'll let you know within three weeks uh, if, if, if we've chosen you. If you don't get a letter within tweet, in th 
three weeks, then stop looking. They don't send rejection letters. So of course, for the next three weeks, I go home during lunch and look for my letter. And on the last day of that three-week period, I open up my mailbox, and on the return address, it says, Will of Fortune. So, you know, they, which was awesome to me. It was like, they, you know, I love that they didn't, you know, put an address from L.A. or Culver City or whatever. It said, Wheel of Fortune, so I knew it. So, of course, I call home first. My mom's freaking out. <laughs> uh, she's like, oh, my God, oh, my God, it's your destiny. You're going to be a Wheel of Fortune, blah, 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 New York. So she's uh, planning her trip already. What am I going to wear? So she's crying and everything else. So, um, so then they, they say uh, you can be, you will be chosen within the next 18 months, anytime within the next 18 months, and we'll give you a two-week time period to show up in L.A. Uh, so now it's practice time. So I, of course I already watched it every night. That's what I did for 25 years. But now I'm like, okay, what else can I do? What else can I do? So, uh, who has an application <laughs> on the iPhone for Wheel of Fortune, of course. So every night, <laughs> I, I kiss my girlfriend, not fiance, <laughs> which I still have to figure out that part, but uh, <laughs> I kiss my girlfriend goodnight, and I play Wheel of Fortune like three games every night, you know, and any time we're at the supermarket, there's a long line, give me your phone. And so I play, I play, I play, and then I play, and I play, play, play. So... Uh, <laughs> So I'm practicing, 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 practicing. And uh, so, you know, I'll figure out that fiance thing later. Uh, and so then they call, and they call the end of July, and they say you have to be here in two weeks. So we, we go down, uh, my girlfriend and I, and my mother comes from New York, and my sister, and so it's a big, you know, big thing. I've got the whole family, the whole destiny thing riding on my shoulder. So, uh, we show up to the show, and they tape six shows in one day. Of course, my show is last, so I get to watch the other five shows. Nervous, uh, you know, and uh, that sucks. And uh, so we get to, so I finally get to my show. But but the good thing was I got to watch the the two people that I was playing against and assess them, and I felt pretty good about my chances. And I was like, okay, this is gonna be good. And uh, we get to the intros. <laughs> okay, so, uh, sorry, so, let me step back for a sec. Um, they start out by doing uh, a toss-up, is what they call it, where they, they have a puzzle and they just start popping letters up. So they pop letters up, and first person, fastest person to buzz in and solve wins the puzzle. So. I, I buzz in, I solve, and then I get to introduce myself first. So Pat says to me, uh, Matt from Portland, I say, yeah. And he's like, so, newly engaged, huh? <laughs> so, <laughs> so I say, yes, Pat. <laughs> uh, at, at which point my girlfriend turns to my mother, <laughs> or I'm sorry, my mother turns to my girlfriend and says, uh, is there something you haven't told us yet? You know, like, a little awkward. Uh, and, and so then, I, you know, we finished the introductions, and, but I'm feeling good, so I got, the, I got the first round, and then they do another one of those toss-ups, and I get that one. So now my nerves, which have been, you know, g 
going for for five hours or six hours, whatever it was. So now I'm I'm feeling confident. I'm like, okay, this is it. I'm gonna I'm gonna own this. I'm uh, I'm gonna dominate this. This is my destiny, you know. <laughs> I I've got this. Shit. So so. <laughs> Uh, so then we start the first round where you where you actually have to spin the wheel and you have to and you have to you know guess letters and buy vowels and and do everything that I've been programmed to do for 25 years, and so I start doing that and I'm going I'm going I got it, and it's a thing and it's a prize puzzle. So the prize puzzle means uh, that that if you solve it, you're gonna get. It's almost always a trip. 99% it's a trip. So it doesn't matter if you have that much money. You just want to solve it and get the trip, right? So I know it's a blank view of the ocean, right? I know it's a, it's a something view of the ocean. It's a long word, and I'm, I'm not sure what it is. But I know nobody else knows what it is because there's not that many letters up. So then uh, I, I, I realize, okay, it's panorama. It's panorama. Okay, I want to solve that. It's a panorama view of the ocean. It still makes me sick to talk about it. <laughs> because it was panoramic. So now I'm that guy. I'm that guy. And, and, I, and I've sat in my living room time and time again screaming at that guy, saying, this is your chance. You're on Wheel of Fortune, and you read the wrong? How, do you, how does that happen, right? So 25 years in the making, I get up there and I do that. So I'm sick to my stomach. Uh, it's the worst, you know, I, it's the worst feeling in the world, it's the worst, but, it, but it's the worst game show feeling in the world. I realize that it's a game show feeling, I know that, but, but it's still a bad feeling. So, um, so it's bad. Uh, and then, you know, the, the girl who goes after me, she had no idea what it was because there were like four letters up there. But since I saw the rest of it and, and, and the crowd does this like weird hush and Pat, who I feel like, you know, we had bonded in the first couple rounds <laughs> and I felt like we were like kind of buddies already. And I could tell he was kind of disappointed that I said it wrong. Uh, so, so now she knows, you know, so, so she just, you know, guesses the C and then says panoramic view of the ocean. And she, you know, takes my Aruba trip, to, to, which sucked, which sucked, which sucked, which sucked, because I would love to go to Aruba. But it, but it also meant that she now has $10,000 when I only had the three from the first toss-ups. Okay, so for, for Wheel of Fortune, so you have to get the most amount of money in order to get to the bonus round. The bonus round is where you really get the money, where you get the big bucks. So now not only did I, you know, embarrass myself and my screw my will of fortune legacy, but now I have to try and figure out how to get back to win the bonus round. Because we'll get to the bonus round, you know. So I'm down $7,000. So she gets the next puzzle. And then I get a little one, which only gave me a little bit of money. And then I had another one of those toss-ups, which brought me closer. But going into the last round, I was still down about $6,000. So you go into the last round where Pat spins the wheel. And then you just guess letters. And you have an opportunity to solve the puzzle. So by the time, so it was three 
three words, and it was a place. And by the time I realized what it was, it wasn't my turn. And I knew that it was Green Bay, Wisconsin, but it wasn't my turn. And, uh, <laughs> and, that, and, and so the girl who I gave my freaking Aruba trip to, she goes, and I thought she knew what it was, but she didn't know what it was. And then the girl after her uh, guessed, okay, so almost every letter was up there in Green Bay, Wisconsin, and she guessed the W. So, of course, she knows Green Bay, Wisconsin, and I'm going home. And I'm going home with like $9,000, which would have been cool, you know, fine, but it wasn't what I was built up to do. It wasn't what I was supposed to do. So she says the W, she has three seconds to solve. She says the W, and I look over, and she doesn't say anything. <laughs> Are you? <laughs> like, <laughs> almost every letter is up there, and you, and you said the W, so you know it's Wisconsin, but wait, green, uh, green, okay, sorry. So, uh, so she doesn't know. So, so then it buzzes, and then Pat, Pat, who again, I think like we're, we're bonding now, is excited. He says, he's like, man. And I said, uh, C, which was still up there for Wisconsin. And then I said, Green Bay, Wisconsin. And that was it, obviously. And so I was happy and thought maybe I, you know, had 15,000 or 12,000 or something. And I look over at the score and I eked out the Aruba <laughs> to get to the bonus round. Yes. I'm going to the bonus round. So I get to the bonus round, and in the bonus round, for those of you who aren't wheel watchers, uh, you get to introduce who's in the audience. So you get to, you get to say, you know, here's my... <laughs> and they get to be right there. So I get to say, this is my mother, Donna. This is my fiance, Catherine. <laughs> And my sister, so the three of them are there. And then, uh, and then my puzzle comes up, and it's a place, and it's two words. And okay, so usually when I watch the bonus round, I, they, so they give you R, S, T, L, N, and E. Okay, thank you. Holla. Holla. Uh, and, uh, and so they give you those, and usually when they give me those, I can, I can get I can get it, uh, but they, they gave me those letters and in the first word, which was seven letters, I had one R, and the second word, which was six letters, I had one L, so I didn't know. So I guessed that you get to guess three additional uh, consonants and one additional vowel, so I guessed three vowel, or three consonants and one vowel, and Pat looks at me, <laughs> again, my buddy, and he says, um, Sorry, uh, all you're going to get is the vowel. And he's like, uh, so good luck. You know, he kind of gives you that kiss of death. Like, all you're going to get is a vowel. You don't, you know, chance. <laughs> so I was feeling happy, like I screwed up, and at least I made it to the bonus round. But I, but I, I wasn't giving up, though. But I wasn't giving up. So, but, but Pat kind of disappointed me with this f lack of faith. <laughs> um, so the so the vowels come up, but I all I got was a vowel, but I but there were a bunch of A's. So I look at it, and he's like, "Yeah, good luck." Like, yeah, I'm a chance. And uh, I look at the second for some reason. I look at the second word first, and I was like, "That could be galaxy," 
and you have 10 seconds. So about five seconds go by, and it's like, that could be galaxy. And then I looked at the first word, and I was like, far away galaxy, right before the buzzer. And Pat looks at me, and he's like, how the heck did you get that? Yes, 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 yes. He says, I've been doing this for 25 years and I still don't get it. He said, how the heck did you get there? I said, I don't know. And uh, <laughs> it was my legacy. But it was so fun to go on there and, you know, I totally messed up and I was that guy. I was that guy who read it wrong, but came back and then, and then to solve a puzzle where everybody afterwards was like, how the hell did you get that? It was was pretty fun. And I have a, I have a friend, uh, a good friend, who's a real and he's, and he's here tonight. And before I left, he said to me, he's like, I hope you go down there. And I hope you, you really, I hope you read a puzzle wrong. I hope you embarrass yourself. And I hope you read a puzzle wrong. And then I hope you win a ton of money. And that's exactly what I did. I went down, and I, but I walked out of there with $40,000 cash, uh, which was awesome. Uh, and, and, but really the best part is that, uh, you know, my, my girlfriend is now truly my fiance and, uh, and we're expecting our first child. So I really do feel like a lucky b Thank you. Thank you very much. So exciting. That was Matt Pellegrin killing it at the wheel. Matt is the manager of a Portland-area cafe, and his belly button is six inches higher than it should be. Online, we're at backfencepdx.com. Check it out. We have videos, podcasts, upcoming show info, and other awesome stuff. Backfence PDX Radio is produced at Oregon Public Broadcasting by Spencer Raymond. Lynn Clendenin and myself are executive producers with Jason Sauls, associate producer. Special live show thank yous to Alex Johnson, Natalie Weinstein, Megan Kate, and Melissa Lyon. And Scott Silver, who imagined the show for radio. Our music by Portland band DeLorean. A big thanks to On Your Feet, St. Cupcake, Papina Swimwear, Hotel Deluxe, and Kate Sokoloff Creative. Find us on Twitter, at BackfencePDX. We're on Facebook, too. I'm B-Frame Masters. This is Backfence PDX Radio. Yeah.